If I said to you, uh, just the simple title, The King of Pop, who comes to mind? Michael Jackson. What about the King of Rock and Roll? Elvis himself. The Queen of Soul. How about the Chairman of the Board? Frank Sinatra. Okay, for you sports fans, how about Black Mamba? Okay, what about the People's Champion? Muhammad Ali. Well, now that I got you with that one, how about the guy that they first called the natural and then later in his career, a baseball player, they later called him the chemist? Jose Canseco. The Great Bambino. Mr. October. How about El Nino? It's Fernando Tatis Jr., guys. You should know this. We're in San Diego. You know, we're all familiar with these titles, or at least for most of us, maybe we'd get some of them. And the reason that we'd know some of these titles is we're growing up in really the same culture in the same era. And so our exposure in this limited window of time is to these things. The reason that Frank Sinatra is less known than maybe some of those other ones is because uh, some of us were younger and didn't grow up hearing his music. The reason Jose Canseco is less known than others is because for some of you, you didn't grow up watching baseball like maybe I did. But for us, because we have that common bond, the same era, the same culture, uh, it gives us insight into simple titles like that where there's imagery that comes with it. It's, it's not just the title, though, of a name. It's even famous sayings that we're familiar with. Even if you've never seen Star Wars, if I started the sentence that, Luke, I am your, you could finish it for me. If you've never even seen Scarface, you probably know the little saying, the snippet that's famous from it of, say hello to my little friend. There you go. Uh, now everyone who answered that is getting judged by the rest of this church. <laughs> You know, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who love Princess Bride and those who hate it, and I'm more a part of those who hate it. But regardless of that, you would know the saying if you've seen the movie, my name is Inigo Montoyo, you killed my father, prepare to die. Some of you know it. In fact, if I quote a simple line from a movie, the amazing thing is your mind is taken to the imagery that's connected to the scene that it's a part of. Just hearing the statement will take you back to that place. A statement like, you're going to need a bigger boat. Takes you to Jaws when the, the massive shark is first seen, the full length of it. If I were to say, I'll be Bach, you're picturing the Terminator. Or if you build it, they will come. You picture Field of Dreams. Or if I were to use a creepy voice and say, my precious, you'd picture Gollum or Schmeagol or whatever we'd call him from The Lord of the Rings. You understand the idea, though, that the imagery that's connected to a title is something that we can share in common because we grew up in the same era and in the same culture. There's imagery that I want to slow down and look at that I think we miss that was a part of our story last time together that if you were a first century Hebrew, a first century Jew, it was a culture that was steeped in Hebrew scriptures like a tea bag is steeped in hot water. And because of that, because their culture was so steeped in scripture, the imagery that would have come to mind when Jesus uses a specific title that he begins to use for the very first time in Mark's gospel there in chapter two uh, is, is something that brought a lot into their minds that flooded their minds like a statement from a movie. You'll need a bigger boat where now you're picturing a boat on the sea and a massive shark present or a title that you instantly know the connecting point of, oh, this is what it's telling us. This is what it's alluding to. And, and that title, that self-designation that I'm referencing is, is one that Jesus will use in all four of the biographies of Jesus. And it's the title of the son of man. 
And although it's unfamiliar to us and even a bit confusing when we read it, because you probably have noticed Jesus will often talk in third person and use that self-designation, the Son of Man, it's confusing for us. There was imagery that wasn't lost on the early hearers of the stories of Jesus. But we don't live in that era or culture, so the title can leave us as confused as my own children are when they see a payphone or a phone book, because it's part of a previous era and a different time, a different culture. And thus far in our journey, as we're working our way verse by verse through Mark's gospel, we've stopped already to hit some key topics that Jesus has introduced us to, like prayer or the gospel of the kingdom of God is what Jesus came teaching. And so we slowed down and talked about what is the gospel of the kingdom. But this is another week where we're going to do the same. And then next week, we'll jump back into the narrative. Uh, If you look in your Bible at chapter two, verse 13, we're introduced to Jesus calling disciples here, specifically a guy by the name of Matthew. If you are a part of this church and have been for the last six months, Uh, Six, seven months ago, I guest spoke here and I told the story of Matthew from a different gospel because it's a a story that I love to tell. And so some of you next week, you're going to have to be a little patient because you may have already uh, feel familiar with this story. But man, I love it. And so I'm excited to get into it next week uh, because that's where our text leads us. But today we'll slow down just to look at the topic that Jesus introduces us to of the son of man. You you know, Jesus was referred to by many different names or many different titles by other people in the New Testament. He's the rabbi, the teacher. He's the Christ. It's not Joseph's last name that he took on. Jesus Christ is is the title Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one. That's the idea. The one who has an anointing poured on him. He's covered in oil is, is the simple uh, definition of it. He's referred to as Lord or sovereign, as master of the king of the Jews, the lamb of God, the son of God. Later in the New Testament, the last Adam. But if you look at how Jesus defines and describes himself in the story we looked at last week, he defines himself as the son of man. Let's just read the story together all the way through chapter two, verse one. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, uh, words are hard. What can I tell you? And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Super fun last week to open that up with you and the, the seemingly irrelevant statement Jesus makes. Verse six, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven of you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, there it is. The the moment in time where Jesus uses his favorite self-designation of son of man. 
It's used as many as 88 times in the New Testament. It's used 14 times in Mark's gospel. It's something Jesus will use often. So our question today is really why does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? And then what was he intending for his hearers to know or to think or to imagine and picture when he take that title on? What should really come to mind for us when we read what Jesus is trying to teach us here when he says the Son of Man? And that title, that self-designation, is pregnant with meaning. So we're going to open it up a little bit right now. Because I believe that this title carries with it a dual meaning or a double meaning. It, there's two things that Jesus is communicating with this one title. The, the two points that are being made speak of, they both address his dual nature. His dual nature, that he is both human and divine. And there's an additional third thing, an amazing illustration and expression of his purpose that's veiled in this statement that we'll open up very quickly uh, together. So there's three things we'll look at that this, I think, is meant to communicate to us that maybe we're missing because we're in the wrong culture and era. And that's the frail humanity is what he's communicating, his frail humanity, his eternal deity. But then also there's sacrificial beauty that's veiled, that's cloaked inside of this statement that he makes of being the son of man. So the first is this. Jesus was communicating his frail humanity when he would use the statement, the designation, the son of man. He's communicating frail humanity. It's an Aramaic word that Jesus actually uses here in Mark's gospel. It's a hotly debated wording and definition because the son of man can actually be, uh, it can be translated for us as son of weakness. It's expressing frailty here. In Psalm chapter 8, you probably know Psalm chapter 8. It's a beautiful psalm. In verse 4, the psalmist, he writes, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you'd visit him? It's the psalmist sitting, we picture him out on the plains, on the hills, looking at the stars, and he starts to, to wonder at, at the amazing fact that, that God could make all of this and yet care for someone so insignificant, that, that God would take an interest in us, that he would care for us, that he would visit us. And Numbers 23, verse 19, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Now think of this, he's not the son of man. Behaviorally, God would never become like the sons of men with a sinful fallen nature. But positionally and categorically, Jesus would do just that. He would become a son of man. In an ancient Hebrew culture, the designation son of could communicate either your direct connection to a family or it could, connect, it could describe your connection to an ideology or a category. It's Elijah and Elisha having the sons of the prophets that were their followers. They're not actually their sons, but they've bought into that ideology. They fit into that category with Elijah and Elisha. It's in the Bible. It talks about the daughters of Jerusalem. And it's actually talking about the villages that surround the city of Jerusalem. They're like little daughters branching out of the holy, massive, sacred city. Jesus is communicating a categorical connection with humanity. It's something that Jesus again and again will emphasize. He's going to identify himself as being human, fully God, and yet coming fully to the earth as a man, setting aside his glory, Philippians will tell us, humbly taking on the appearance, the form of the, the lowliest of forms, a humble servant. Jesus would enter into humanity's plight in order to identify with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, the high priests that we have understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do yet he without sin he identifies with us but he also can help us 
Hebrews chapter 2 says, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to aid those who are being tested. But he came also in order to ransom us. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the son of man, to use that designation, he's communicating the frailty of his humanity. And here's the truth. We, we have some people in our modern culture who would stop us right here. And maybe you're a part of this, that, that you're here observing. And I don't ever want to take for granted thinking that, that you're all maybe sharing the same convictions I have about Scripture or about Jesus. And, and if you don't share those convictions, I'm thrilled that you're here, that, that you're weighing out those decisions. But some would stop us. And maybe some here would even be a part of that. To, to just say, I've kind of heard enough already because for you to even suggest that Jesus was human is, is to suggest something that I'm not really comfortable saying that I agree with because maybe you don't believe that Jesus even existed as a human being. Because there are people today who, who would push back on us and say, well, you've lost me already because the humanity of Jesus is something I don't believe because I believe he's a mythological character who never really existed. But how do we know? If you're a follower of Jesus, how do you really know that he existed as a member of humanity? Because some would claim it's just a fictitious claim that he's just a made-up character. There's a, a website I came across a few years ago, an atheist website called godlessgeeks.com. And here's what they said. They said, as for the extra-biblical historicity of Jesus, there's absolutely no reliable contemporary evidence that he ever even existed. He made no impression on any historian of the first century if Jesus existed or if the spectacular events in the Gospels really happened, they would have been noted by many writers. So think of, think of those who are outside of uh, the family of God and who are, who are coming and saying, we don't believe this. What they're saying they don't believe is either that the Bible could be trusted and also that no one outside of biblical authors wrote about Jesus at all. So briefly with me, just dive into those two pools, those two lines of thinking that the Bible, whether or not it could be trusted, but also then whether or not people outside the Bible even wrote about Jesus and his humanity. I believe that the Bible is a trusted source on history. And if you'd look with me, just consider in your mind the manuscript evidence, just that today. If you just consider that with me, there's two different nerd terms that I'd want to introduce you to uh, when speaking about the origins and early copies of the Bible. The two different nerd terms are autograph and the second one is manuscript. The autograph is the OG original copy that, that Mark himself would have written out. That's the autograph. There's only one autograph of Mark's gospel. It's the very first one that was written down. And then there's something that we refer to as manuscripts. These, these are handwritten ancient copies of the document that were hand copied so that it could be mass distributed to different communities and different villages that surrounded uh, where the church first was birthed. They, these are handwritten copies that predate Gutenberg's invention of a printing press in, in the 1400s. Before the printing press, Bibles were meticulously hand-copied by, by Jewish scribes and then later by Christian monks. And although we don't have a single original copy of an ancient autograph of a biblical text, it does not mean that we can't trust what we have because we have ancient manuscripts. We might not have those first copies, but if we're honest, it might be a good thing that we don't have those first copies because if we did... 
we probably have a tendency to revere them or even for in some parts of Christendom to, to worship those things as these sacred icons. And then it would be a power play for whoever pe- possessed those things. So it's probably better we don't have those originals. They probably wore out and were replaced over time by these manuscript handwritten copies. We do, however, if we don't have the original autograph, we do have very, very early copies of the biblical text. In fact, just using Mark's gospel as an example, Mark is believed to have been written in the late 50s or early 60s. And beginning in 2014, there was rumors that started hitting the internet of a fragment of a manuscript of Mark's gospel that was found inside the mask of a mummy because they would use uh, little fragments of different manuscripts or things that were just lying around in tatter that they would then use almost like a paper mache to fit a mold around a mask. And as they were peeling layers off it, they found a manuscript copy, a little fragment of the gospel of Mark that they were saying would go back to as early as the 80s or 90s A.D. Now, previously, the earliest copies we have of the Gospels are in the second century and between 100 and 200 AD. Now, it's a super controversial find. But if this rumored find is published and proven to be from the first century, then it would show you just how early Mark's Gospel really, truly was written and that it was not written as folklore sometime hundreds of years later. But for me, more impressive than the single find that's so early that may date back this one exclusive fragment to so early in history, more, more encouraging for me, more impressive, is the sheer volume of ancient early handwritten manuscript, manuscript copies we have of the Bible. Compared to other ancient books, or even stuff that's not nearly as ancient as the Bible, for Shakespeare, there's not a single partial or complete manuscript of any of his plays that have ever been found, ever once. None of them exist. Maybe you watch that show on the History Channel, Oak Island. I, I will shamefully admit that I do. By shamefully, I, my wife and I, every week when we watch it, we say we're really dating ourselves that we've been watching this show about treasure hunting. This is what we would have laughed and said, oh, our parents watch stuff like this. And now we're seven seasons deep, so we're much older than we thought. But not a single manuscript copy has been found of any of his things. I bring up the show because that's what they speculate is maybe that's what's buried there on that island. How about Caesar? His go- uh, I almost said Galactic Wars. That'd be a far more interesting read. Uh, but it was written in the first century BC, Gallic Wars. Uh, there are only 10 manuscripts in existence of that ancient document. And the earliest copy we have is a thousand years removed from the original. Aristotle's Poetics was written in the fourth century BC, and there's only five manuscripts that exist of it. And the earliest one is 1400 years removed from what he wrote. Or even the important first century document, The Jewish War, written by Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, it survives with only nine complete manuscripts that date from the fifth century, uh, which is four centuries after his life was completed and it would have been written. Or there's Homer's Iliad. It has the most manuscripts by far of any ancient document. It has about 650 partial or complete fragments of manuscripts that tell its ancient story. Now, in contrast to that, you just heard the numbers. The earliest textual evidence for the New Testament we have was copied about 100 years after the original. And then we have over 25,000 partial or complete copies of the New Testament with almost 20,000 additional partial or complete manuscript copies of the Old Testament, bringing your grand total to 45,000 manuscript copies of your Bible. 
ancient handwritten copies. And in addition to that, there are many more writings of the early church fathers quoting sections of scripture, church leaders from the first and second century, who as they would write each other in these distant places, they quoted the scripture so much that you could reconstruct nearly the entire New Testament just from what they wrote quoting scripture. In fact, there's more than 86,000 quotations of the New Testament in their surviving documents and letters. And those documents and letters uh, you can buy on Amazon. I looked this week, it cost you about 1500 bucks. I don't know that it's worth it, but it's a 38-volume set so that you could try to piece together the New Testament just from what they wrote. Dr. Norman Geisler, who published dozens of books about his research of the Bible, he said it this way. He says, it is an amazing fact that the New Testament could be reconstructed simply from quotations made within 200 years of its composition. Now, in contrast to the godless geeks, I believe that the Bible is a very trustworthy source of history, specifically on the existence of Jesus. I would, however, agree with them that if if Jesus really lived, then there should be external, outside of the Bible, uh, writers who would document things about the life of Jesus. And there are. People like Tacitus and and Guy Suetonus Tranquillus, Pliny the Younger, and then the Babylonian Talmud and Mishnah write about him. Flavius Josephus writes about Jesus. That's that's a handful right there. But in their book, The Case for the Resurrection, the, the two authors, they work hard in order to pull together more than 40 sources from history that mention Jesus with Within 150 years of his life and ministry. Listen, by uh, applying the title, the son of man, Jesus is communicating his frail humanity. And that's something I think you can be confident in, that he did come. God left heaven and came in frail humanity. And with that confidence that, that he really was a historical character and figure, there should be a sense of confidence that that, that frail humanity that he embraced left him with a deep understanding of what you and I suffer through. Don't just hear this, the idea of the frail humanity of Jesus, and think, yeah, okay, I get it, I believe that he really came, but a part of that should also be, and I believe that when he came, he experienced life in a broken world so deeply that he understands the things that I'm facing. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, I love how it says it. Seeing then that we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. It means to suffer with us, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because God became a frail human, you can know with confidence that God is now able to understand man, but also able to sympathize and suffer with us. But even more so, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he or she was, they wanted to point out to us that we ought to have confidence that he's able to help us in our time of need. The word help that they chose to use there, it creates a beautiful picture because the only other place it's used in the New Testament is at the end of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is on a ship and the ship has is, is got waves crashing over the, uh, the, the railing and onto the deck and it's beginning to break apart, board by board, plank by plank. And they're fearing that they're going to run aground and then that'll be it. Everyone's going to drown. The, the sea is overwhelming them. The storm is raging and they've got no idea what to do until someone has the genius idea to take a cable and to undergird the boat with it. The, the boat breaking apart plank by plank, they'd throw a cable around it or the poor guy who drew the short straw and had to swim under the boat. I don't know how they did it, but get a cable around it to pull and cinch it tight to hold the boat together. 
It's beautiful because the imagery is that the word help that the writer of Hebrews uses in saying we know that he understands us, can sympathize us, and can help us is the word that is used in the book of Acts of cable. The thing that held it together in the midst of a storm when everything around it was pushing it and causing it to fall apart piece by piece. That life does that to us sometimes, but that we look towards Jesus, God in his frail humanity, knowing that he's able to hold things together, to pull us back together in the midst of the storm. Listen, remember today and appreciate the humanity of Jesus, because that's a part of what he's communicating here. But the other thing he's communicating here is not just frail humanity. The second thing is that by using this title, Jesus was claiming eternal deity. He's claiming here eternal deity. And some deny that Jesus ever even claimed that he was God. But Jesus, however, was very clear about that claim. And his enemies knew it. In the Gospels, you read it, John 5. It says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. It's John chapter eight. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. It's alluding to that sacred uh, divine name of God that God gave himself while speaking to Moses. And it says, and then they took up stones to throw at him. It's John's gospel, chapter 10, when he said, I am the father, our one. And it says, and then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And they told him, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Listen, his enemies knew it, but also his disciples, the the New Testament, Testament authors, they confirmed this. It's John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's Thomas answering him when he put his hand at his side. He said, my Lord and my God. It's Romans chapter 9 that that says that the Christ who is God over all. It's Titus chapter 2 saying, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Hebrews chapter 1. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's 2 Peter chapter 1 where he refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. Listen, by applying this title, this designation of Son of Man, Jesus is claiming to be eternal deity. He's identifying himself as a deity, as God, the God, the creator of heaven and earth. His favorite self-designation, the title of Son of Man, is something Jesus stole straight out of an ancient Hebrew text that I'd love for you to turn to. So go to the left, all the way to the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Go way to the left. Because this is where we lose the imagery that the early listeners to Jesus, that the early readers were well aware of. That for Jesus to use this title was stolen right out of this famous moment in the prophet's life and in the history of Israel. It's something that's believed to be a messianic prophecy that, that gives this, that introduces this title of Son of Man. This is where I tell you again that like me saying you're going to need a bigger boat and all of our minds go to Jaws and that scene, when they hear the Son of Man, everyone's mind in their eyes would have gone back to the scene that Daniel chapter 7 introduces us to. And the bold claim that Jesus was making that he was deity. Remember, this idea, Son of Man, has a double meaning of being human, but according to Daniel 7, also being the exalted heavenly one. And Jesus, I think, means to communicate both of these truths and realities. 
Now, if you don't know much about Daniel, the prophet, his book is chock full of prophecies that would foretell things that would happen hundreds or even thousands of years in the future. In 605 BC, uh, the Babylonians come in, come in and they, they grab, uh, well, in, in 586 BC, well, 605, they come, they grab young men, and in 586, then they go back and they destroy Jerusalem itself. But that's the time frame where Daniel and some of his young friends are taken then into a different culture to be indoctrinated. But instead, they determine we're not going to defile ourselves. We're going to live for our God. They'll spend 70 years in captivity. Daniel will be, will be taken as just a teenager and a nobody, but he'll end his story in a very prominent position. Now, Daniel 7, where you just turned, some theologians believe is a mere image of a prophecy and an image, a dream that's uh, described for us in Daniel chapter 2. Where in Daniel 2, there's this statue, and you remember, if you know the story, the statue represents different kingdoms and empires. And some would say that Daniel 7, which is this vision that he has of these different beasts coming in succession, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and this fourth gnarly beast that he doesn't even know what to call it, that it's a mirror image of what Daniel 2 had already told us. But the difference being, Daniel 2 is mankind's perspective of these future empires that will come. Uh, future empires, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, who will all conquer each other successively until the Roman Empire just kind of dissolves because of internal issues and a loss of power. Not that they were conquered necessarily from the outside. From man's perspective, massive, big, impressive is how man saw it, like this beautiful statue. But from heaven's perspective, chapter 7 may be telling the same story. It's ferocious and chaotic. It's, it's a mess, the way that God is looking and seeing it. And as we look backwards, it, it is a mess, these empires that rise and fall. Others would suggest that maybe Daniel 7 is not talking about ancient empires, but more about modern nations. Because if you're in chapter 7, in, in verse 7, it talks about this one beast. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. One of the ways that word before it can be translated is not necessarily successively coming, those beasts that successively came before it, but to stand in the presence of. So meaning that maybe they're not just successive empires, but maybe it's talking about these nations that will exist in the same amount of time. And so there's controversy here that's maybe worth your time this week, maybe to read through and, and chew on some. But regardless of what you think about what it's talking about, all agree, though, that beginning in verse 9, you have this amazing vision that Daniel sees Almighty God in. In this vision, God is referred to as the Ancient of Days, Eternal God, and he sits in judgment over these beasts that are ruling the earth, and he takes their dominion away from them. In fact, why don't you read it with me? Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, I watch till thrones were put in place. It's a really interesting detail. Multiple thrones, but we're only told about one person who will occupy a throne in the story. So in the story, we're, as soon as we get a view, this is a view into heaven. Part of the view that we get is that there's thrones beside God himself that are vacated, that are empty. Now, why would there be a vacant throne there? Well, we know the story. We know from Genesis, uh, the early beginnings of mankind in Eden, mankind forfeited their right to rule with God and have dominion with him. This is a vacated a forfeited throne even that humanity has given up. But one like the Son of Man will reclaim mankind's rightful place 
as heirs with God, having dominion with him. So read with me, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, this is eternal God, was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand, oh boy. For those who couldn't see it, the Wizard of Oz moment just about happened. The house didn't blow away, but the umbrella did. Fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. The heavenly realm all of a sudden turns into a courtroom drama. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words, which the little horn, it's one of these beasts, something that emerges from him. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, to eternal God, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Okay, now track with the story. Everyone agrees that, that this is an image of the heavenly realm and of eternal God. But the thing that gets crazy is that then you're introduced to this figure, the son of man who comes to the ancient of days, who's given dominion and authority and an everlasting kingdom and then told that everyone shall serve you. Now think, even in the context of Daniel, Daniel's young friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to serve the false gods of the land to serve it. The implication is to serve something as God, to worship and serve. So now heaven itself is saying of this, the son of man, that the earth itself, every empire, every person should should turn your direction to serve and worship you. It's a claim here for Jesus to take this title. It's a claim to deity. When he calls himself son of man, he's identifying himself with this heavenly figure that Daniel wrote about here that will reign as king forever. One whom heaven itself says is worthy of worship. Now, you should know that there's ancient historical documents that date to the time frame of Christ, the Babylonian Talmud and Mishnah that record for us the rabbinic traditions of that era. And this was a hotly debated topic. This passage was because they looked at this passage and then Zechariah 9.9. This passage talks about God having someone come to rescue with authority and power of heaven coming on the clouds with all of the authority of heaven with him. But then at the same time, you have prophecies like Zechariah 9.9 that says he comes lowly and seated on a donkey. And so the rabbis were in hot debate about what was right. And there's one rabbi he even wrote, he said, I would offer him my own horse because he should not be ever on a donkey, some lowly animal like that. But what they didn't realize was that their prophecies about two different comings of the same individual Jesus, one time where he comes lowly and a second time where he will come with the authority, the clouds, even the angels of heaven coming with him. Jesus will take the imagery from Daniel 7 and he'll use it himself. Mark 13, when teaching his disciples, he says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. While on trial before the high priest, this is the conversation that takes place in Mark 14, But Jesus kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the anointed one, the son of blessing? 
Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A direct reference to Daniel 7. Then the high priest, he tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now think about in the story of Jesus. The cross becomes the throne, the enthronement of Jesus. Where in Daniel's imagery, he is given the position as the rightful heir of that throne to bring humanity. Think of it. The gospel of Jesus is not just the good news that I can be forgiven. It's the good news of restoration, bringing humanity right back into right relationship with God. As his sons and co-heirs, as having dominion, is seated on a throne beside him. That's where we end up, and that's what Jesus is doing. For Jesus to claim eternal deity here, he, he knew what he was doing. It's not just that, that we can know that he existed in humanity, that, that history itself provides that evidence, but we even know that he was deity. And it's not just because of his claims or even just because of his miracles or his authority over nature or, or within creation or in the spiritual realm or even his authority in his teaching, his resurrection. And, and then the reports that his disciples were willing to die for of seeing him alive proves his deity. And Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy undoubtedly does that as well. Jesus, you remember, uh, well, uh, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? They, they are ancient handwritten copies of the Old Testament that predate Jesus, some of them by centuries, and that log for us all of these prophecies about Jesus' life and, and his ministry, his death and his burial and resurrection. And Jesus fulfilled those things. The, the Dead, Sea, Dead Sea Scrolls prove to us that what we have hasn't changed but it also proves to us that what we have is true and trustworthy because of the prophetic nature of the text. But how do we know? How do we know what any of this proves to us? Well, Jesus told us what it proves to us. Mark 10, 45 again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus told us that, that within this title... Human and divine is meant to be a portrait of sacrifice. That God would leave heaven and become completely a man, the son of weakness. Not for what he could get out of you. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to give, to give his very life for you. My friends, I think that this title is meant to leave us with some confidence, not just that Christianity is true and trustworthy, as maybe I've presented to you today, but but that you would have confidence that your trust in the grace of God, that the grace of God is dependable. This was this morning driving here. This is what I was praying for. Is that we would take the leap from just going, okay, well, these things are true and trustworthy about what I believe to be true about the book. But that we'd have that kind of conviction and confidence in the grace of God extended to us. That we can't exhaust his grace. That God is different than everyone else. I, I wish it weren't true, but everyone keeps score. God keeps promises. A confidence that Christianity really is unlike any other religion, because every other religion presents for you a list of requirements, things you have to do, and, and, and expectation you have to meet or keep in order to reach back to God, to reach and to please God. Christianity is so different. You have a God who reached down to touch and to rescue, to save you. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's, it's a gift, the free gift of God, lest any of us have anything to boast about, Scripture says. You and I need to have a confidence in the grace of God 
as strong a confidence as we would in maybe the trustworthiness of Scripture or the historicity of Jesus or even his deity. Jesus was claiming here frail humanity. He was also claiming eternal deity. But we land the plane by just saying that he was also expressing sacrificial beauty. And if you still have your Bible open, flip real quick to Job 25. Jesus here is expressing sacrificial beauty. In Job 25, if you know Job's story, he has lost a lot. And then part of what he didn't lose was a wife who said, well, just curse God and go die somewhere. And another thing he didn't lose was a couple of friends who at times gave him really bad advice. But there were moments where they would push back on Job and seemingly have some wisdom. And it's while Job, in Job 25, he's wrestling through injustice and violence in the world. He's looking at how broken stuff is. How broken culture and society is. He's wrestling through those things. Injustice and violence on the earth. And his friends give a response. Job 25, it says that they step up and they answer him saying, Dominion and fear belong to God. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? How can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight... How much less man who's a maggot and a son of man who's a worm. Job's friends push back on him here saying, Job, remember, you're you're wrestling. You're, You're stuck in the tension of I'm believing in a good God, but I'm looking at a broken world marked with injustice and violence. They push back on him and say, but remember, he is the one with ultimate authority. He is the one with infinite power. He alone is the one who's righteous. Okay, now, real talk, even if we believe those things to be true, yeah, he does have ultimate authority and infinite power, and he alone is righteous. We, like Job, are left wanting more. We look at a broken world like he did, saying, there's injustice and violence, and I've had enough. Where is God? And we can live in that tension, too, wanting more. It's this week, a mass shooting at a FedEx facility that leaves eight people dead and just seems mindless. It's, It's last month, it's a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, that left 10 dead. It was the week before that, three salons that were hit in Atlanta. It was just days before that, or I think it was even the same day, wasn't it, where five were killed in a string of drive-by shootings. It's this week, a a man whose wife had called the police uh, because he had become so enraged, she was fearful, and when the police checked in and then left, he took a gun out and took her life and then his daughter's life as well. It's, It's a body cam footage of a law enforcement officer who in a split second made a decision and ended up shooting a 13 year old. We don't know the situation, but, but gosh, the, the tragedy of a 13-year-old dying, the tragedy of even an officer having uh, just to deal with that image. Our world is so broken. This is what we're looking at. It's a police officer in Minnesota being charged with second-degree murder after drawing her, her weapon rather than drawing a taser at a traffic stop and leaving someone without life. And that's not an anti-police statement at all. My heart breaks, absolutely breaks, for Dante Wright and his family who lost his life. But my heart breaks also for this officer, Kim Potter, and her family. It's, it, it breaks because our world is broken. I look at all of these things and say, God, I, I can believe, like Job's friends say here, that you have ultimate authority and infinite power and that you're righteous, but I kind of just want more than that sometimes. Because I look at the injustice in the world. Because I look at stuff that's broken in the world, and I want to see more. But Job's friend's comment here gives a little tiny prophetic foreshadow of how God will do it, of how he'll make things right again, 
of what he'll do, of how he'll demonstrate his righteousness, of when he'll use his ultimate authority and power to establish righteousness on the earth again. They give a little prophetic foreshadow. Job 25, verse 6, and a son of man who's a worm. That's your little prophetic foreshadow. Think of this. The son of man will become a worm. I think it's actually something scripture teaches. I think it's something Jesus reiterates and affirms even. It's in Matthew's gospel where he's on a cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quote from Psalm 22, which if you're a rabbi, which Jesus was, you'd play a game where if you quoted the beginning of a passage, your followers quote the remainder of the passage. And Psalm 22 gives this amazing play-by-play that he would be surrounded by his enemies, that his bones would not be broken, but that they would slip out of joint at crucifixion, that he would cry out in thirst, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that, that his bones not being broken, but that they'd come to break his legs, but he would already be gone, that they would cl- pass lots for his clothing but also psalm 22 verse 6 but i am a worm a tola and not a man it's the same hebrew word that was used by job's friend saying that the son of man is but a worm a tola and i did some research on that tola worm so believe the things i'm telling you i'm not just making this up because it makes for a good ending here but this worm this tola specific worm this hebrew word was used often to be crushed to make scarlet dye That's why the word tola is actually interchangeably used for worm in the Old Testament Hebrew and for scarlet, the color of the dye that it would exude uh, once it was crushed. Webster's Dictionary, 1913, uh, defines it this way. A worm would fasten itself, this specific one, to trees in the area of the Mediterranean. Or then I found in a book called uh, The Bible, or Biblical Basis for Modern Science, and I brought the book just to prove I'm not making this stuff up. Henry Morrison, here's what he wrote. He said, when the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to leave and enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surface of the wood. It's beautiful. He points out then uh, that for one to suffer... Uh, it's done so that another may live. Now track with me. This worm would fasten itself to a tree, choose to do it purposefully, willingly, and would die in the process of giving birth, imparting new life. And its body then would be consumed, and it's morbid, I know, but by the baby worms. His life gives us life. It would leave a red spot on the tree. About three days later, because of the sun beating down on it, the red spot would turn into a white substance that would flake and fall to the ground from the tree as if it were snow. Quoting from Isaiah, Come now, let us reason. Think about this together, says the Lord. Though your sins were like tola, like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. There's this story from the life of Luther, and I'll, I'll just give the short version, but where he supposedly was visited by Satan when he was trying to lead the Reformation. And when he was visited, Luther recalled the story saying that Satan came and brought all sorts of accusations, and they were rightful accusations. You're lustful in your heart. You have envy and jealousy and rage in your heart. And so as he began to list these things, Luther took out uh, an inkwell and he started to write out these accusations that were rightful about his character. And he wrote them all out one by one until Satan ceased. He had stopped. And he asked him, are you finished? And when there was no reply, he wrote over top of all of them, washed in the blood of the lamb. And the moment was done. 
Listen, when Jesus used the self-designation son of man, he's communicating his frail humanity, which we need to know. But he's claiming his eternal deity, and he's also expressing his sacrificial beauty. He's giving us a little glimpse into what he'll do and how it's going to go down. For the Son of Man will not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, Jesus, we stop just to thank you then that even in the midst of us like Job looking at a broken world and saying, God, we want more. We know you have authority. We know you have power. We know that you're righteous, but we want to see those things come together and make the world right again. You did that. Your ultimate authority and power on display in humility and love on a cross to make the world right again. Jesus, thank you. God, we have to choose. We, we look towards you today. We look your direction and away from disappointment and hurt and brokenness in our own lives and in our world around us. Jesus, we look to you who did not just give just an answer from heaven. You brought a solution to the problem instead. You didn't just enter our intellectual dilemma. You entered our world and gave your own life to rid the world of sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all. Jesus, you are the great son of man. God who came to take on frail humanity, you understand us. You hold us together as we run to you. But eternal deity, the one that we run to knowing that you can help us, that you have power to aid us. And Jesus, thank you so much that you'd be willing to rescue us and the world around us through the self-sacrificial love that you displayed on a cross. Father, we thank you and we worship you because you are good. Our world is broken. God, we're broken too. But you're good and our hope is being with you where things are made right and where we are too. In Jesus' name, amen.